Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in-depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA, and a three-year certificate prioritize experimental learning and perception. Beginning in fall 2021, the Studio School welcomes artists from around the world to join its inaugural virtual certificate program. Combining the studio-centric emphasis of the school's teaching methods with an individual real-time approach to online learning, this full-time program is designed for serious artists and dedicated aspiring artists who seek to cultivate the studio skills and methods that will prepare them for a lifetime of art making. The priority application deadline is April 30th, 2021. Apply online today at nyss.org. Alice Aycock has lived in New York City since 1968. She received a BA from Douglas College and an MA from Hunter College. She was represented by the John Weber Gallery in New York City from 1976 through 2001 and has exhibited in major museums and galleries nationally as well as in Europe and Japan. Currently, she's represented by Marlborough Gallery in New York and Gallery Thomas Schulte in Berlin. She had her first solo exhibition of new sculptures with the Marlborough in the fall of 2017. Her works can be found in numerous collections, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the LA County Museum, the National Gallery of Art, the Sheldon, the Storm King Art Center, the Louis Vuitton Foundation, and the Sprengel Museum in Hanover, Germany. She exhibited at the Venice Biennale, Documenta, and the Whitney Biennial. She's had three major retrospectives. The first was in Stuttgart in 1983. The second retrospective entitled Complex Visions was organized by the Storm King Art Center in Mountainville, New York. And in 2013, a retrospective of her drawings and small sculptures was exhibited by the Parish Art Museum in Watermill, New York, coinciding with the Gray Art Gallery in New York City. From March 8th through July 20th in 2014, a series of seven sculptures were installed on the Park Avenue malls in New York City entitled Park Avenue Paper Chase in collaboration with Gallery Thomas Schulte in Berlin. Alice's public sculptures can be found in many major cities in the U.S. Some of her public commissions include a rooftop sculpture for the 107th Police Precinct House in Queens, New York, and East River Roundabout for the East River Park Pavilion at 60th Street in New York City. Star Sifter, a large architectural sculpture for the rotunda at the Terminal 1, at JFK International Airport was completed in 1998 and recited above the entrance to the security zone in 2013. Other public installations include a suspended work for the Philadelphia International Airport in 2001. She's received numerous awards, including four National Endowments of the Arts Fellowships. Alice was a member of the New York City Design Commission from 2003 to 2012, 
and she's been appointed to the GSA's National Register of Peer Professionals. She received the Americans for the Arts Public Art Award in 2008 for Ghost Ballet for the East Bank Machine Works in Nashville, Tennessee. She was inducted into the National Academy in New York City in 2013. She's taught in numerous colleges and universities, including Yale as the Director of Graduate Sculpture Studies. She's been teaching at the School of Visual Arts in New York since 1991 and was a visiting artist at MICA in Baltimore from 2010 to 2014. The International Sculpture Center presented her with a Lifetime Achievement Award in Contemporary Sculpture in 2018, and she received an Academy of the Arts Achievements Award in Visual Arts from the Guildhall in March 2019. I spoke with Alice from her place in Sag Harbor for a talk about her storied career coming to age in a much different art world, John Cage, Chaos and Order, and much more. Here's our conversation. Yes, but um, what you have to understand is um, I'm not in my studio. I wish I were. Uh, I'm dying. I am now longing deeply with, you know, in a kind of insane, crazed way to I'm in Sag Harbor, outside of Sag Harbor on Long Island, where it is snowing and snowing and snowing. And I, uh, it feels like it will never stop, never end, and that I am imprisoned within <laughs> this moment. Yeah. So, so I um, have uh, purchased, um, and you know, I wish I wouldn't put it like that, a puppy. I purchased her in December. Mm-hmm. You can see everything's a long story, but I'll get to the surfboards in a moment. That's okay. Um, I purchased her mid-December, and I came out here thinking I would have the holidays, and then there would be this sweet little puppy that would sort of make me, help me to, as everyone was saying, it will be so good during COVID, and et cetera. But I'm kind of trapped here with this puppy because she is uh, the Tasmanian devil. And uh, therefore, I retreat to my son's childhood, adolescent, teenage, young adult bedroom where he has, when he left a year and a half ago, he placed the surfboards that he makes. He's now made probably 40 or 50 more. But he told me I could not disturb any of them, that he had left his very favorite so that so while it looks cool, like I am the surfing, you know, um, what do we call me? Uh, I don't know. Granny, a surfing granny, <laughs> uh, artist to granny. The truth is, it's just I've taken over his bedroom because it's the safest place where the dog cannot reach me for any reason whatsoever. And, and I can work in, in some kind of solitude and quiet. But it, it's, yeah, that's what's back there. Now, I don't think this should necessarily be on the podcast, but if it makes me more human, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I, and from I, this point, I can look down onto my yard and the road, which, you know, and watch the snow just pile up and the trees bend and, and just imagine that I will never, ever, 
get out of this place. Uh, <laughs> but which is so ironic because there's so many people right now who are in the city who really want that, that oh, really? escape outside uh -huh. of the city. I mean, especially in COVID, you know, like we were in lockdown for months and months, you know, not leaving yeah. at all. And the idea of well, having so a was yard, I. The yeah. idea of having yeah, a yard yeah. is nice, you know. It sounds nice, particularly with a with a young with a adolescent son. Yeah. It's you know that he could sled and have fun right, and right. really yeah. And I agree. It's just when you are uh, locked in to where. Um, I agree. I agree with everything you're saying, except that there are services that the city has that this is bizarre out here now. Yeah. And um, there is a film, which I used to give my students, um, and I looked at it the other, it's called Silent Snow, Secret Snow. And it was uh, made in the 50s, and it's from a Conrad Eichen story, which I think we all read in high school. And um, it's a, it really is creepy. It's got, it's short, it's creepy, and it's about a young boy where it snows, and eventually he just withdraws. You know, he's sort of moving into a kind of mental illness. And it's so, so appropriate for the moment. Yeah, well, we all want to be somewhere else. Um, and I was locked into, you know, from March to May, where I went out three times, I think, last year. Yeah onto the street because we were so freaked right. by COVID. We thought if we even breathed the air or, or we'd start wiping down our cardboard boxes, yeah, yeah. it was, um, and, you know, and it was nice to get out, but in the spring, but um, I guess I'm a New York city person. And uh, this is, uh, this is a prolonged, it feels like a lockdown and a locked in, particularly with the snow. Right. Yeah. But, um, when it's, anyway, when it's not nice out, it definitely tests. Yeah. Like even tests. in the city, you know, when it's at least in the spring and the summer, we were able to go to the park and we yeah. would go to like Randall's Island or somewhere where there's some more space and get out. But when you're just in all the time, it does, it drags a bit. It drags. And, uh, this sweet, beautiful little puppy is, uh, you know, really a bit of a nightmare as well. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> they always paint it as like, you know, oh, it's going to be so relaxing to have oh, a puppy. Yeah. And, and you're like, and wait, I got to walk thing. this thing or like let it go outside every morning. Well, it's not just that. It's every time you turn around, she's pulling down your face. You know, she she got all the books that I didn't care so much about. Now she's going for the good ones. Oh, yeah. The top and shelf I mean, ones. Just, yeah. It just it's kind of like a never ending thing. So but anyway, um well, your location, so you have, uh, obviously, we're both from the Keystone State, so you grew up there. Yeah. But you're a New Yorker through and through. So what are your, what's your living, working situation like? And when I was thinking about your work and, like, imagining, because I don't know about your studio, I don't, uh -huh. I mean, I would imagine it's got to be big. You're doing fabrication stuff probably off-site, too. So, like, what's your, yeah. what's the, the live-work situation like, that balance? Well, um, so I was one of those people who came to the city. Um, I did grow up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, for various reasons, my family, my parents uh, lived in New York before World War II. And they worked 
for architects and engineers, and they were working on air airstrips and highways and various things. And my father was an architect and an engineer, and my mother was the secretary to, I think, someone, the, the Pennsylvania Highway Department, blah, blah, blah. And then they all came to the city for the war effort. And, um, and my parents were lived there and liked the city and were married there. And uh, after the war, my father uh, started a business in Harrisburg, a construction company, because he went off to be part of the Army Corps of Engineers. He started a business in Harrisburg because it was a good place to locate Bethlehem Steel, blah, blah, blah. But we were always oriented towards the city. They had a, a love-hate relationship to it. Um, and um, so we would escape at least once a month to see theater and have good food. And, you know, it was just, you know, what what happened. And so as a young child, I'm think, I think the first play I saw was South Pacific. I was six years old. And I was just, you know, addicted. I just wanted to get up on that stage and dance and be part of the city. And I never wanted to be, I mean, I was just, I kept saying, why wasn't I born here? Why did you leave? You know, all of that. And to me, this was where the action was and the excitement and going to museums and, um, and you know, there was just this kind of, strange orientation like if you wanted anything important you went to new york if you wanted great books you went to scribner's if you wanted to see theater if you wanted to buy clothes if you wanted anything that was you know uh, whatever you went you went to the city and even though my parents would go when i so i just wanted to be there and um uh, and so I went to college, uh, sort of at, at Rutgers, Douglas Rutgers, and then there I was, you know, I could go, I went in every weekend from the time I was 18 and went to galleries and did whatever. I was just, it was my, it was where I wanted to be. So after I graduated college and I was um, accepted at Hunter, which was where at that time, once again, New York was a small art world. I told you, once you get me started, I won't stop. <laughs> it was a very small art world. Um, it wasn't even the West Coast. I mean, there was some stuff going on on the West Coast for sure, but it was really New York. And, um, and the art world was also not the art world of today. It was, we were um, outsiders we were aliens in, in America. I mean, we were considered wacko and weird. Um, and, um, uh, you know, people were suspicious of New York and suspicious of New Yorkers and um, all of that. And that made it even more seductive and exciting for me. Um, so I moved in when I was 21. I got married to my college um, boyfriend and we were off to the races and um i think when sometime in 75 i lived downtown on the wall street in a loft i rented in way way downtown in a tiny little street 
where we lived for about six years while I was in graduate school and also after. And then in 75, we bought a loft in Soho and moved in in 76. And that's where I've been ever since. Good time to get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Although I'm sure it was a little rough around the edges. From It was like, very rough. I mean, there was one grocery store and Finelli's was there and still is. But I've seen Soho go through all kinds of ups and downs. And right now we're in a new one. And I would say the place that I have lived that gave me solid ground, um, it did. It was the one thing that held true through all the years and all the ups and downs and ins and outs of a lifetime is now, you know, under duress because um, while the press likes to talk about all the wealthy people in Soho and it likes to talk about, it likes to do whatever it wants to do with everything. Um, it's, there are still artists there. There are a lot of artists who never purchased or are living on rent controlled there. Uh, they're hanging in. They may be getting old and dying off, but they're there. I know. I see them. I saw them. Um, and there are people we, you know, own part of a building and we are, our taxes are extraordinarily high and we have uh, problems with renting now because the city is under, you know, is really going through another one of its moments. And uh, so it's a really tough time to hold on to my solid ground, as a matter of fact. And um, it's uh, another one of the nerve wracking curveballs that uh, life throws at you. And that, you know, that so. Yeah. Is it is it made easier to navigate in the cyclical nature of it that you feel like you've probably gone through these iterations of the ups and downs? Because I've had a lot of mentors when I was younger as an artist who told me that, you know, it's really is like surfing in a way like you just yeah. have to there's going to be waves and there's going to be times where you wipe out and you just got to get back on the board and kind of keep going and the wave will swell again and it's up and down and. It's just part of you're the right. process. You're right. I mean, I you're absolutely right. Uh, although I kind of likened it to you know skiing or something, yeah, or yeah, going like river rafting or whatever, or the stock market. Right, right. <laughs> you know, ride that, it out. You know, <laughs> ride it out. Um, I think all of that is true. I would say I would have said that with great ease. You know, in a kind of very sort of like tough way until the pandemic. And I think that um, you do get to a point where um, when, you know, it's not just riding out the ups and downs of your career, which I, will, I could speak to, but it's also riding out the ups and downs of a lifetime where, you know, you, uh, you have a lot of loss along with a lot of good stuff. What I was looking forward to doing, in all honesty, was um, focusing on dotting the I's. And by that, I mean, yeah, I'd gone through all the ups and downs of a career being hot, being not so hot, being sort of hot, being, you know, all the nonsense that goes on. Um, but I had reached a point where I'm, you know, where I wasn't so 
uh, and I'm still not so kind of dislocated by what people say, whether I'm, you know, in, whether I'm in or out or whatever, where I wanted to kind of have an overview of my work, rescue the pieces that I believed were worth rescuing, so to speak, of which there are quite a few in storage, whatever, um, and, and then work on what I'm calling my last piece, but my last piece would I would have worked on for 10 years or 15 years and kind of finally done what the boys did when they were in their late 20s and 30s, which is buy some land and work on their masterpiece for the rest of their life. And that's Heiser and um, uh, Terrell and the Marfa thing. And I was ready to sort of say, okay, I bought some land. I'm going to take, you know, what I've money that I may have saved or made, and I'm going to plow it into my what I what I believe I I need to say at this point and kind of not finalize things because there's always a new idea. There's always a new way to kind of interrogate yourself and say, did I do enough? Did I really? Is this the world has changed? Am I, you know, really? sort of in the present in terms of what I'm thinking, but I had come to some conclusions. And I think the pandemic has, has driven a real whatever through that. Um, and um, so that while what your mentors have said, I absolutely agree with, um, this is, a, a, you know, coming now, where, um, and this is, it's hard to explain. I don't know how old you are and I don't feel old. Okay. I have to keep reminding myself, you know, I keep going, I, this can't be true. Like, this can't have happened. I'm still, you know, that person that came to New York in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and blah, blah, blah. But um, when you wake up and you know that people who, even if you didn't necessarily find their work so extraordinary, they, you read each day in art form, oh, so-and-so is not alive anymore. You know, you realize that, you know, your world is leaving the stage and your time now, time is important. And you don't have, you know, and it's not so much the fear of dying of COVID, frankly. It's just that anything could happen. So you got to get going. And this fucking COVID is standing in your way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's the, a different kind of roadblock than we've ever really, or at least in my lifetime that I've encountered. And, you know, I don't, I, I'm getting a touch of it. I think, you know, at I'm 46 and I have, you know, family members who are getting older and you know and and also like in in college I was a like I'm really into music and I was a jazz DJ in college and you know the, the people that I studied in music that I loved and jazz those guys are just you know a Go lot on. of them are going and it's like yeah. it feels historic that like all these creative people of a specific time you know are just moving on and you know that's that's yeah. tough because in a way I don't know when it when it came to like the fifties and the sixties, you know, that 
not not limited to that time, but these ideas of movements where there was a a general push of like you know something like bebop, which was identifiable as breaking the boundaries of like melody, and there was a movement, and there was you know a group of people who were associated with that, and as those people start to pass, it feels like you know. I don't know. There's it, you. It it becomes really. You become conscious of that. You know. Yeah, you do. Um, and um, and it's sort of like the people that speak your language that you don't have to explain things. You know, this is the thing. I I don't. In a way, I when people come up to me and they go, "Oh, remember such and such," and they often, sometimes, well, I haven't seen anybody that much lately at a party, but we'll go, "I remember when so and so said such and such to me," and they're still carrying these resentments, and I'm going, "Good God, you know, who cares?" But uh, at the same time, um, there was a kind of coherence to movements, and whether it was the you know whether people were in or out that there was a kind of coherent point of view that then could be discussed and then undermined and then elaborated on or diametrically opposed but there that, that we had this kind of coherence to in you, your case music and and, and and as well and and, and in lots of things in theater and music and um and uh, and now it's as though there's just a kind of randomness that that where is the there there? I know it's there. I mean, I'm not. And um, and I want to say that um, I had a uh, an encounter with a young Chinese artist who um, presented. I teach. His name is Zi Yang Wu. And um, he made a presentation a couple of years ago at my school at SVA, and then he's teaching there, and I invited him to one of my classes last week. And I see him as the next, you know, his work, which is very much about AI, computer, virtual animation, came out of painting, um, as someone who I could see as, you know, the future. Um, and, and he's a very, very intelligent, well-read, you know, I mean, we're not talking about just any old thing. Um, so I'm not, I'm not one of those people that go, oh, you know, the art world was so great, now it's whatever. No, I know there's there there. I know that there are things that are germinating that are really going to be exciting. I mean, because that's what human being, you know, it's, it's going to, it's, it's there and it's going to continue. It's just much harder to find. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, but how could you really be all in favor of that? Because like when you were sort of emerging as an artist, you're coming out like in just speaking of gender, I mean, you know, the boys club mentality of, of the art world, basically from, you know, square one to like 19, whatever, you know, 90 or it's still not, there's still not equity necessarily, but way better than, you know, 1974. Yeah. So how could you, you know, you would, I would imagine that, you know, um, there would be a sort of celebration of the diversity of what could, obviously some will lead to think that that could water down certain directions and, in innovation, but I mean, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that, you know, you celebrate diversity in a way that, I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you. Like, I remember seeing a postcard for a show 
in the Whitney and it was a group show and it was like men, like white men. And then it was Joe Bear. And I and I've <laughs> always loved Joe Bear's. That work is uh, incredible to me. I, I love that work for how bold it was and what she was doing at that time. And I was like, what it must have been like to be in the room or work like proverbial working room as an artist with all that like testosterone and you know bias and just it must have been brutal well yes and no um and and i, I always have to um you know be ca and particularly careful right now because at any moment you can seem like you've joined you your your being disloyal to your sex and at the same time um you or you're resentful you know right. like you're you're bitter yeah um and um i guess um i had this i had a couple things going for me um and i always have to go back to this and then i say alice you know why are you telling the stories over and over but with that, I had a very lucky, um, let's say, um, coming into the world, or, you know, and it was just lucky. Um, I had this grandmother who was not just the matriarch of my father with my father's family, like the woman who, you know, cooked and did all these things. She was the intellectual center of it, and for some extraordinary reason. Uh, she had gone to college, which women never did. Uh, you know, she was born before the turn of the 20th century and she had gone to college and she was, um, and she taught math. Um, and uh, she raised three, got three boys and they were all, um, you could just tell um, in awe of her. I mean, she was, she was the brainiac in the family. And um, she was well read, and she was a study, you know, she was taught math, and she was a poet. She was a poet, and she would paint. And but the point is that they were not. They didn't look at her. I don't think. I you know. I'm just maybe I'm making this up. Like the person who nurtured them and fed them and did all that stuff. She was the person who. You know, if, if they didn't get, I have letters here from one of my uncles who was in, in college saying, I'm trying to get good grades, mother, you know, and she was the person, the intellectual, whatever. And so I knew her as a very young girl. She would, um, and, um, and she was, she would tell me stories uh, or orally that, um, and she was basically for the boys. I mean, I was one of the few girls in the family, the grandchildren. Uh, so she'd come and she would tell me stories, which I later realized when I went to school were, you know, oh, geez, that's O. Henry. Oh, that's Jonathan Swift. Oh, that's, you know. So I had that. And then I had a father who, whether he thought I was his intellectual equal, he challenged me. And I would rise to the challenge. And so he'd throw another thing at me and I would, you know, try to uh, rise to it. You know, here's 50 books. If you read these 50 books, I'll, I'll, I'll um, buy you 50 more. And I didn't read all 50, by the way, but I did let him buy me more. And then I watched him 
the classic story of he would rush home from work. We lived in this little builder's house, you know, when I was a little girl, tiny little house. He'd rush home from work, he'd go to this table, and he would start making this model and doing these drawings. And he'd give me some paper, and I would wait for him to come home. And I was like three or four years old. And I'd sit on the floor and I would try to copy what he was doing. And then he'd say, here's some graph paper. Here's a ruler. And he was building the model for the house that he then built that I grew up in. And so I was just a lucky kid. All right. No one said, and I had a mother that treated me like I was God's gift. I didn't realize it. She waited till she was very, she was in her late thirties when she had me. She never thought she would have children. I was, you know, whatever. So I just lucked out and I didn't come in to this. The, yeah, there were all these challenges. There were all these guys. They were behaving like assholes sometimes, very much. But I, I did, it didn't occur to me to go, oh, Oh, they're blocking me. It was just like, I'm going to do this. Why shouldn't I? Why, why would I not? Right. But it's not worth holding it up as a big pain because it gets in the way right. of my thinking. And my thinking was not restricted to like only women can think like that, you know, can only think this. When your father buys you Oscar Wilde when you're 12 years old, right? right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, or, uh, or this, you know, the Scarlet Letter, read it, you know, or read, you know, um, uh, Camille, read about a Parisian whore. Right. You know, I mean, I just, I mean, or he would take me to, you know, see uh, uh, all kinds of film. I mean, it was just like, I got to go to the movies and I got to take you. It's a Friday night. It's your mom's day out, day off. Okay. You're just going to go see this because I want to see it. Yeah. I'm not going to take you to cartoons because I'm bored by cartoons. So, I mean, that was the way my father was. So I'd see Hitchcock. I'd see, you know, I mean, I'm, I, you, it's funny when people go back to their childhood, but I guess what I'm saying is I didn't know I had to ask permission I just, I just was allowed. Yeah. So, you know, now, did they think, I mean, the world was very different um, that, at that point. So when I came into the scene, it was kind of like, um, well, I want to talk about everything. I want to think about everything. I don't want to just think about what's between my legs. Right. Because that's a given, but I want to, I always would say, I want to sit at the grown-ups table and just think about all of it. And, and also, and I think this is so important, I just told you about my identity, but my identity was, was about dream yourself into other, when, you're, when your grandmother is telling you stories about Gulliver's Travels. And Gulliver is finding out about the world that's not his world. The, the underlying, whether they were conscious of it or not, is find out about the other. Use your brain and your, 
sense of whatever to journey through the world and find out about the things that aren't you, right. that aren't your life, you know, your little life in this kind of provincial little town yeah. where everybody was the same, where everybody was white, where everybody was Protestant, where everybody was the same. Yeah. No, don't do that. Find out, you know, about all these other things. And um, so, again, I was just a lucky person. Um, yes, the, uh, yes, I will say, yes, guys don't like smart women who challenge them. Right. And, the, and the, they don't like that. And, you know, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, especially considering it seems like from a family perspective, it was, you know, celebrated. Like it seemed like you had all these resources given to you. Where I've seen like growing up, you know, of bigger families where the boys get a certain kind of attention and the girls get a different kind of attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. hopefully we've like, you know, moved from that. Uh, one well, I yeah, I really hope so. I mean, I have to credit my mother though, because where my father may have veered in that direction, she was the one who said, you know, she didn't say, "Oh, it's time to set the table." Oh, it's time to do the dishes. She said, "Oh, here's dinner. Now, now you have to go do your work." Right. <laughs> well, question asking for a friend because um, are you messy now? Like in your life, are you kind of messy? Because I'm raising my son like that, where I end up just cleaning up after him all the time, and I'm wondering uh, if he's going to be a real slob when he gets old. <laughs> uh, I'm always like, just well, I'm messy work. in the <laughs> studio. I'm really messy in the studio. Oh, great segue. Uh, you know, things things pile up, and it looks like it's chaotic, and piles and piles of paper, and but I'm also underlyingly very organized. And then the one thing I've always done. Uh, is have a cleaning lady. Oh, well, yeah. Cleaning lady. Yeah. But I used to have cleaning guys, uh, too. Um, and so, um, in that sense, um, no, I'm not, I mean, you know, uh, it's a strange kind of messiness, which has an underlying order. There's a um, control to the chaos. It makes yes. Sense. I mean, that's really, to me, from an outsider's perspective, that's what your work looks like. It looks like trying to contain energy or trying to articulate um, dyna dynamics in like the visual plane and, and trying to capture, visualize something that is um, conceptualized or felt in a real yes yeah and so i'm really interested in that you know what's the underlying order that looks like disorder but it's there and we tend to want to box everything up a la donald judd and in fact i'm much more interested in the things that appear to get out of control but are actually another kind of much more interesting order which is the order that i think is is the order of life yeah. forms yeah, i mean it's life that is appears disordered but in fact it's the only way it can work and i hadn't quite said it like that but when things are really ordered they're dead <laughs> right you know they're a rock just sitting there but what i would like to return to is an interesting thing when you brought up what it was like back then because um, I give these little talks to my students and 
um, just before, you know, particularly the beginning of the semester and they're still figuring out what they want to do in the studio. So I'll give them these little talks and did a talk on pop art. And it was all guys, basically. It was all guys. Yeah. And then I thought, well, let's just look at some art that's been done by women. And, and I picked a whole group of people. And it was clear to me as I was putting this talk together that every one of these women, starting, you know, with uh, Louise Nevelson and Louise Bourgeois and, of course, Eva Hesse, that, but going right up to the present time, are really credible, really, really interesting artists. Yeah. They're not just women. They were not just filling in the blanks. We're not just sort of saying, oh, well, okay, we forgot about you. They really, really, really are, have really something to say. They're deeply, they're, uh, they've really gone very deep. They're visually very provocative. They're, they're, it's very, very, very rich, extraordinary, and very complex work for the most part. And, um, and when they do figures, uh, they do it, you know, their sense of the body is one in which, you know, they, they let it out. Right. They're not afraid of, their, of exploring things and of their feelings. But the point is, male, female, or whatever, we're no longer just saying, okay, we'll give you a shot at it. They're just, they're there. Yeah. And that is... Um, and they're having, you know, I don't think they're having to suffer the way Joan Mitchell or all those people had to suffer, right? Right. right. Which they did. They had. They, they were, um, they were uh, working under great duress. Yeah. And you know, and having to drink their way in order to whatever the pain. Um, and I, I can't speak for these women. I mean, some of them are my age. They're whatever. But I can say. That no no excuses. This is really good work in my estimation. I, I don't think it is work. I would yeah yeah. I don't think it impinges on the work at all. Like when I look at your work, it doesn't matter who you are. Like because I remember seeing your work before I even knew it was your work because it was in the public realm. So I would see it here and there, and um, and then I became aware of you and like your work and your drawings and all that stuff. But it didn't matter that a woman. It's it's kind of like. It doesn't matter. Jackie Robinson is no less of a baseball player because he's black. But it's amazing of the crap he had to put up with. And he still was able to focus and make that career happen. So it's not like talking about that. Um, um, Same way. Yeah. I mean, Obama is an example, you know, of somebody who is just who was just there. And you say, how did that happen? How did it happen that a young man who had a hippie mom who dropped him off with his grandparents and barely knew his father could be the extraordinary human being that he is? And, and, you know, and just how do those things happen? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, You know, I just know that um, that it does. And you're right. Jackie Robinson had to. But but he, he had possibly he couldn't hold all the pain and be the good be as good as he was he had to let the pain go otherwise it would get in his way and i think that's what i i mean i'm not saying that it wasn't that things weren't rough 
And in some ways, the more obvious things were easier, right? You know, the, the, the ones where you were, you know, where you were, I mean, I could give you an example, but was in, um, the Venice Biennale in the International Pavilion back in, I don't know what it was, 80-something, I guess, 70-something, 80-something, I don't know. And all the Italian artists refused to let them open the pavilion, uh, or they, they eventually they did, because I got to build a piece and they didn't. <laughs> That was pretty bad. Yeah. You know, it felt pretty bad for the moment. Yeah. And I do remember it, although I remember it now because I'm being kind of asked to remember those things a bit. Right, right. But yeah, it was kind of, it was shitty. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, God. But for some reason, it didn't make me stop wanting to do the next idea. Sure, I was more yeah. worried about whether where I was with my work was good enough than I was whether they were having a little temper tantrum, I guess, if you know what I mean. That is an example. It was one of those, you know, difficult moments where uh, they were all light, sitting there drinking wine in the Giardini and, and they would be, and they were having one of those Italian temper tantrums that only Italian boys can have. Now, if that's, <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to hear about that on Twitter. Or something. I would imagine that. Yeah, know, yeah, but it was a, it was a it was 40 years ago. So let's not get our knickers in a twist about it now. <laughs> well, speaking of 40 years ago or earlier, do you think that your within your work this kind of um combination of an epic kind of narrative that might fuel it because I've often read in your work that there's this narrative there's relationships to stories and I think even you mentioned that of like this connection to narrative but also this like exploration of space and dynamics and architecture and building and and trying to capture maybe something that's uh, unbuildable do you think that relates to that early childhood of like reading those books and getting that narrative influence but at the same time sitting next to your you know, your father who's working on these kind of like architectural things and you kind of through osmosis picked up some of that um, wonderlust yeah. with, a, you know, with yeah. uh, built dynamics and also sweeping narratives. Yes, I think you you captured it. It was the combination of the two, the visual and the verbal or the the architectural and also the, the literary and they were going hand in hand and the right brain, left brain, whatever. Yeah. And by the way, I wasn't good at math at all. Uh, I'm still not. And I sometimes think, you know, I dream these things up in my head. I don't necessarily, I mean, I do draw, of course, and try to plan things out, right? You know, now we work on the computer. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think it was those two things. And, um, but I also think, and I don't want to be, um, and I think, you know, we could go on and on in another way, this notion, and it had to do with being born at a certain time after World War II, when I think people had gone through a lot, a lot at the beginning of the century. And it was the new world that was going to be made, you know, and it was going to be progress and science and, you know, 
you you and we're going to go to the moon we're you know it was all of this sense that we were going to build a better world for everybody utopia we were yeah. yeah solve problems um and and again in my youth college there was there was trauma i mean the trauma was the assassination of of John Kennedy, the assassination of Bobby, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, that was, you know, attacking the youth, my my, my youth, my, the people I loved, that were in danger of going. But we were going to triumph. We were going to, we we had a way through this, and we were going to prevail. And when we marched and did these things, you know, that we carried this through somehow and i think and i remember when i when i could see my my family turning meaning they my father tried to go a beard and do all these things and he was kind of like okay i get it i get it yeah. i'm with you i'm with you um and you know and there was this uh, feeling of um you know okay and i think now we're in a different time um and um, I don't want to be pessimistic, but um, I think we're in for it, Brian. I mean, I, I think we are. I think that there are so many incalculable. I mean, I was thinking of John Cage, who was a mentor for me in the incalculable, incalculable, I'm not pronouncing it, infinity of causes and effects, yeah. which were always going on. But now they're going on with such a rapid pace and we have pulled so many triggers, particularly environmentally, that it's um, this we're in for a rough time, I think. And um, and it's not in certain ways different than it ever was. There were always wars. There were always the decay of civilizations that, you know, there were always hierarchies that were leveled. There were always pandemics. There were always, you know, uh, fires and, you know, throughout, you know, all the history and the right. myths. But this is a much more global situation. And I, um, I think it's, I guess, what gives me comfort, and this is going to sound, and I thought, Alice, do you want to say this this morning? But... I was out driving before the last snowstorm and I was hearing about some scientists that were in the Arctic, I believe, and they had drilled down very below the ice, very, very deep. And they found some life forms living there. Yeah. And that gave me comfort in a way that some of these great romantic visions don't. It's funny. Yeah, no, Thinking about, I, I, that, uh, that's really poetic. And I, I think it's, you know, I, I think there's such a propensity to feel very pessimistic or negative about the fact that like we are going to do ourselves in, but I think it's human nature and I think it's just the evolution of species and of, of life in a way, you know what I mean? Just as, you know, like forest fires can be so devastating to people, but they also regenerate the soil yeah. and they're, they're essential yeah. and, and people like to your point yeah like there were always like little people starting mini fires here and there but now we're so the speed and the sort of access to everything is so um rapid and close that it it creates a more global um 
you know, warning of of what we're doing now has it was like the the Oppenheimer words, you know what I mean? That where he um quoted the Bodavista about, you know, I am become destroyer of worlds. It's it's basically like he knew that yeah. once he invented that ability that it, right. it sooner or later it's gonna all you know, we're gonna do ourselves in. But then yeah. that's kind of the irony is what we feel that makes the human species special or what makes us us is our ability to be creative and to be inventive and to want progress or to try to change or develop. And that is essentially what will cause, you know, a collapse in a way. It's just like, you know, you, you won't have a giant building collapse if you don't invent giant buildings. Well, yeah, we saw one, by the way, which was, we won't get into that, but there was that oh, beautiful know, video, know. and I, you know what I'm I talking about. I know exactly about. what you're talking <laughs> about. It's fresh in the mind. <laughs> yes, it was so, it was just, whoa, it was so good. Yeah. But um, I guess I would also say, and and I'm and, and amidst all of this, that I think that at, at the very basis of part of what I, I mean, I, I realized a while ago that, you know, the creative and the destructive just wrap around each other and that for, you know, that war is, is actually one of the motivators of innovation, that incredible innovation comes out of war and that, and and vice versa. And, you know, from the Bible, like take the plowshare, take the, take your swords and make them plowshares and that combination of, you know, how technology, but I, I guess what I feel is that if my work is successful, it's both seductive and slightly terrifying at the same time. I, that's what I love about the work. I, and that's really what I want to say about in the work. It's got to have both things. Right. And regardless of whether people shy away from it or not, because some parts of it are a little too scary, perhaps. Right. But it's got to have both or I'm not doing my job. But the thing is, is right. But the thing is, is that your work does it with this beauty that complicates the severity of the implications of the heft of and the gravity yeah. of it to me. So in other right. words, like when you look at the large collider, whatever that collider hedron yeah. thing is that right. basically, is like, yeah. Yeah. you know, that thing, which is terrifying. Right. Like that's right. a terrifying larger than human uh, consciousness, like development or invention that can make you scared in a way. And I don't know that there's a ton of poetics to it, but I think a lot of your work has that kind of feel of something that's maybe got out of control and it's it's kind of regenerative and it's doing its thing and it feels a little inhuman in a way, even though there's a real humanity and a poetics to the movement of it. It's like if you took that large collider and and merged it with like Japanese prints of like paper floating around. Yes. Yeah. And I love Yukioi, by the way, I look at it all the time. Biggest influence. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, And I just constantly look at them and I, and I get so much delight. And at the same time, it is all about the sea and whale and the spider God and everything that's there hovering over you. And, and visually very chaotic and whatever, but there's also all that beauty that comes from all of that. And peace, too, and, right? There's yeah, a peacefulness yeah, to the, the, yeah. the, you know, the heaviness of it. Yeah. And I, to me, it seems to me that you have to, I always said you have to sit down next to the devil and, and talk to 
talk to him or her. Um, and in order, you have to like get inside and in some ways allow yourself to be almost seduced by the thing that most terrifies you and that you're most against right. in order to understand it. But I feel I've got to present both and. And, um, and I've got to tell people, no, it's not just all right. No, there's this other thing going on. There, these two things are going on. And that was another thing. We used to go, when the hurricanes would start, my father would say, let's go down to this beach and watch it. <laughs> you know, now, it, or let's go, you know. I'm not saying that he put us, in, that there, he put us in danger. But, you know, one of the books that he gave me was Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural for me to read at night. In other words, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, it was my bedtime. Mm. And I would savor these stories and read them carefully as I tucked up safely in bed. Right. You know, and in, in, in a in and in, but it was always about you've got to know about this other thing. And if you make a work of art about it or you make a play about it, or you make a story about it, that's a way of, you know, of, of understanding it and having some, but it's also the way the world is. It is. And it's you linked know, no to the creative what. process because that's yeah. our enabling us to understand things that maybe we don't even want to try to understand, but we need to. Yeah. We, know, but we have to. We have to. Can I give you yes. an example of what I was thinking about this morning when, uh, when I looked at look back at some of the earlier work and I thought about Maze, you know? Uh, and then I thought about The Shining and when I saw that movie and what the yes. hell, like that just, you know, <laughs> it's like one of those, well, things, it delves into the psyche, the, the fragility uh, of the human psyche and speaking of being trapped in the snow and being alone and yes. so many resonating things here. So, but, <laughs> but thinking about like that being trapped or, you know, that you it's exploring the dynamics of the human mind under duress which is a prickly subject and maybe but look it turns out to be an amazing piece of art that film yeah yes and that feeling that i think you were probably going for in that piece of like feeling you know trapped trapped. yes in the labyrinth yes well it turns out by the way that i have a character that i refer to all the time and he he lives inside me his name is tony the little man that lives in my mouth oh that's right we haven't and met tony yet today you haven't met tony but he comes out of the shining <laughs> he you i don't know if you've met tony i'm trying to keep tony he's behaving this morning he's trying very hard um to behave but he's the one that every now and then, you know, just kind of loses it right. or uh, or just says, strips away the, you know, whatever the, the sort of illusion that we're all trying to be under and then just says it. Um, but I did get him from The Shining and it is an it is was an incredible film. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh I think about it often, and I actually saw that film with my second ex-husband, Dennis Oppenheim, who was a little bit like that character. (laughs) And I remember (laughs) after we left the film, I looked at him, and he had that kind of gleam in his eye. And um, 
he definitely was the uh, the male character. That's so funny. I thought you were going to say there was a look of guilt in his eye, but no, 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 no. There was not. It was. It was like, whoa! I just got some more idea. Oh, some new ideas uh, have how to you know misbehave oh, here. Uh, so um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I think um, that's what I think the work is tapping into. That kind of. Uh, um, you know, exploring, I mean, that's me totally reading into it. And to be honest, I've come across your work and have known your work for so long in so many different stages, not that I'm that old, but you know, in my creative life that I haven't read a ton of stuff about you or your work necessarily. I think I just brought my interests into the work of what I read into it. And, you know, I do that a lot with like, you know, music. It's like sometimes you'll listen to a record and you just feel it. You know what I mean? Like I could read, John Cage was a huge influence to me uh, musically. Like the band I was in was called 33.3, which was like kind Uh. of like a, you know, a nod to, you know, his silence piece. And, you know, it, it, those kind of people are just so amazing. And sometimes the more, like you don't have to read everything about their intent. You kind of, bring your own something right. to it yeah. and I think for me your work was always like that like those drawings just playful I think they're sketches potential sketches for projects or whatever but it, I came across those at the same time when I was in graduate school and studying fractals and reading about archigram and and you know yeah. Peter Cook came to to speak okay. at the school and like it was all this sort of like delving back into utopic it was at the beginning of where I think technology and computers were entering music and entering artwork in a way that seemed a little more like, oh, this could be anything. It's like utopic. Yeah. And then it just became the internet and we've, you know, right, right. that happens. And sort of, yeah. But yeah, the, the, the work resonated in, in so many different ways and, and it's like amazing. I don't. Well, that's good to know because, you know, you never, you, you never really know what, there's there is the person that one is that one keeps you know evolving and you know certainly was more um, vulnerable as a young person than I am now. Like I like to say, there's no warm blood, but of course there is. Um, but um, it's good to know that it actually is doing what I want it to do. You know, I mean, it, it is my intention. And um, the other thing I would say is when I read Silence in college, it's what, one of the reasons I became an artist. There are certain, you know, just reading Silence was so important. Yeah. And years later, and sometimes, you know, I didn't, you know, could I have sat through, I have nothing to say and I'm saying it. I have nothing to say and I'm saying it. I mean, could I have sat through all of Cage's stuff? Maybe not, but years later, I was running to catch an airplane to go to this little school in Virginia called Roanoke College. And I ran up to, and there was a line, people getting on the plane, and there he was. And I thought, oh, my God, oh, my God. So I ran up to him, like, you know, I said, I just want you to know that you're the reason I became an artist. And then I ran away. (laughs) And then, you know, he got on the plane. And I was sitting there and I kept thinking, I'll never see him again. Um, uh, I should just, you know, when we're leaving, because he's probably going somewhere else, you know, and I better say to him, you know, I just want you to, you know, I just, could you, could you 
you know, give me your autograph or something. It turned out we were in the same, going to the same school. We sat in the same little house, you know, where everyone was sleeping. That's so cool. And I was building this big piece with this big blade machine. And he was doing his thing, reading his poetry and working with his students. And I don't think, I remember this look on his face when he saw this piece. And I think he was going, I don't see how you and I had anything in common. <laughs> you know, and this quizzical look on his face. Right. But I got to hear him in, in his most playful and beautiful, you know, and poetry and mu music. And it was really a, a wonderful time. And, you know, I just, I guess it's that we have to hold on to these things, these people that mattered to us, that changed our lives. Yeah. And I like to say, all we can do is hope that we put something out there and somebody comes along and picks it up, like in the wind. Right, definitely. And and takes it and does something with it, even if it's not quite what we intended. Like, I'm sure Cage thought, what's this goddamn big bl spinning blade machine have anything to do <laughs> with, you know, my... Um, my, you know, my randomness, my poetry, my, you know, all of the things, but it did, of course. It yeah, did. for sure. I wonder too that um, for you specifically, I mean, I think any artist who is making work and it's getting out there, you want to communicate ideas to people and you do hope people like sort of see it and maybe it's down the line, they reflect on it or it makes an impact to them. But for you, I would imagine it's, there's two levels to that because so much of your work is in the public realm and for the limited, you know, I've done like public uh, murals and animations and stuff, but not too, too much. It's been a smaller mm -hmm. part of my work, but the engagement that I get when I'm out with other people outside of like the white cube is, is really great. It's different. It's raw and it's, it's got a great sort of, you know, sort of bare face to it. You know what I mean? And I yeah. imagine you get so much more of that. Well, it's hard to know, you know, um, what I find, which has really been curious over the years, is that when I'm installing something like on a big construction site, yeah. that the people who are the guys, mostly on the construction team, they get it. Yeah. They immediately get it. And it's like they don't, I mean, it's a really funny thing. They'll walk up and go, hey, you know, I make such and such. And I'm really into, the, you know, these things and, you know, blah, blah. And they'll start these conversations and there again, what I find is because I am comfortable on construction sites, I'm not like the weird lady who walks in and they go, where'd she come from? It's like, I just, you know, cause I grew up around that stuff and I don't know, we just, it's like you kind of convey it psychically. Hey, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm interested in how you're putting this thing together and I'm going to stand back and watch you do your job and appreciate it, but I'm not like gonna like whatever. And so I find that on that level, I will have, you know, these, these guys will come up to me and we're all, most of the time, we're all simpatico and it, and they get it. Yeah. They get it. Um, and, um, but sometimes um, I would say that um, you also encounter a lot you encounter, you know, communities that that don't. I mean, I think down there in Coral Gables, they're still having trouble. You know, every yeah. now, you know, um, you will encounter when you're installing people uh, shouting at you, saying, 
you know, all kinds of negative things and in which I always go, I, I learned a long time ago to go, well, I don't know. I just, I just work here. I don't know who she is, right? you know? Um, so it's a mixed bag and it isn't always great. And I would also say that you don't want, or I do not want my work to simply be a palliative, so to speak, to, um, to like, well, we're, we, we didn't, we're not really feeding, you're, you're all homeless and hungry, but we're going to do a piece of art that will recognize you. Yeah. But, but we're not going to feed you right, and give right. you a home. Right. I don't want to be in, you know, that kind of situation where the work is used as a way to kind of pacify people or whatever. Um, and so to that degree, um, it isn't as it isn't, you know, and then the art world often looks down on had for a long time, looked down on so-called public art because there was no money to be made out of it. Right. You know, the yeah. art, the artists couldn't give them their, you know, 50 percent or whatever. So there are lots of, of things about it. The reason I like the reason why I've gravitated towards it is because I wanted to work with large scale architectural space in the world. Yeah. But for every, um, for every presentation and proposal, I might have one, you know, one out of 15, one out of 20. Right. It isn't, you know, um, it's usually, yeah. That's, if you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. I, I tell students all the time, you know, it, for artists who have been doing it for decades, still every grant you apply to, whatever, if you get like one out of 20 in anything, that's good. You know, yeah. you have to be used yeah. to just not and not take it personally. I think those like reality checks are really great. Like I remember doing a mural on Houston Street and over the course of like, you know, the few days of doing it, it went from, you know, some people were saying like, oh, that's, that looks great. And then another person's like, yeah, I like the one from uh, last week better, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you don't go to openings and get that. Like, yeah, I like the last show better than your show. <laughs> yeah. No, everybody lies that openings right. and oh, actually okay. they don't look at the work. Right, right, right. <laughs> they just, you know, they're trying to, they trying to network exactly. usually. I mean, that's the funny thing about openings. They're all about networking, not really looking at the work. On the other hand, yeah, if you do it out in the world, you know, you're going to get all kinds of comments. Yeah. It keeps you, keeps you honest. <laughs> yes. Yes. I kind of love that I, though. It's, it's, it feels real, you know, it puts you, it puts everything in check, you know, in yeah, a good way. Yeah. So you've had, well, you, in, in your work, like I remember the first time I went to Storm King and just that, uh, that piece, I forget the title of it, the tiered one. Uh, yeah, yeah. One. It, I call it the Storm King piece, but I think it's called Threefold Manifestation. Man, yeah. it just was so cool. Like, I was so into that. And then I remember, you know, for years I was driving up the FDR and would see the roundabout piece. Right. And I had yeah. no idea. I was like, what the hell is that thing? <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a while to, like, you know, investigate it and realize, oh, that's her piece. You know, I had no yeah. idea. Well, I was trying to, you know, I was thinking about um, New York as Coney Island, and I think the Rem Cool House, Delirious Manhattan, uh, 
book yeah. that he wrote really impressed me. And also another thing is I grew up around Hershey Park and we were always there. I and remember. I loved roller coasters and the park and amusements. And so I was thinking of, you know, New York as being, you know, a kind of Coney Island crazed thing. Right. And I wanted to register. And it's also they needed it to be a place, a pavilion where all kinds of things could happen. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't be on the ground. You had to be on the roof. Yeah. And I mean, there were a lot of different ways. And it actually came from a diagram because I love dance. Um, and I'll, I'll tell one little story about that in a minute. But uh, Fred Astaire, there was a diagram that I found and of Fred Astaire showing a dance. And I took that and used that as the basis for, you know, for there were lots of inputs, but that was the basis for it. But uh, dance movement was the thing I could do as a child. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you always have something that you're just able to do. Right. And so um, my mother made me uh, take piano lessons and I went, you know, that she wouldn't let me play Broadway. I had to just do the classics. So uh, I was always obstinate, but it was dance that I loved, ballet and dance and, you know, any kind of dance. Yeah. And so I grew up, um, in the, in this little town in Pennsylvania, uh, called Camp Hill. And there, I, there were two guys, the Orem brothers, and they, one played the guitar and one played the organ and they became the Aldantes. And the Aldantes came out of the churches in Harrisburg, the gospel churches. And so we were very young and like in sophomore, junior, senior, um, we were groupies to this band that was part white, part black. And later they became, the Aldantes became the Delphonics. Oh, wow. But music was really, really important. It was also a way of integrating this very uptight white community and shocking them. But the truth was that um, if you didn't know how to dance, forget it. Yeah. You were just... It was, you know, you had no, so, cachet. <laughs> no cachet whatsoever. And so it, so part of my with these, the twisters and all of that is the movement inside your body when you're dancing. Yeah. And um, the final thing, and then I guess we should end with all the stories. Years ago, I was going back and forth and back and forth to to Europe. Um, it was in the 80s and I had shows there and I was on the plane a lot and I would come home and have jet lag. And one night, I, one day I came home, I didn't go to sleep, I went out dancing at the Roxy or something. And uh, with there, it was um, the, the music, you'd start dancing and you'd be in the 80s and then suddenly you'd be in the 50s and then you'd be in the 60s. And each time the music changed without just abruptly, yeah. you'd have to, the rhythmic system of the music would change and you'd have to change your dance movement. So I went home, I danced, and then I went home and I fell asleep and I had this dream that I was dancing, but I was dancing through all of history. 
And one moment I was in the Middle Ages and the next moment I was somewhere in India and the next moment I was with Fred Astaire or whatever. And every time the music changed, the rhythmic system in my body would change. And it was like I was in a time machine. And it was though I would enter these different worlds and cultures and um, like through the rhythmic system compositional inside my body through the music and the dance. And then I, I thought, well, all these different worlds have different compositional systems like Yukioi or like Persian manuscripts or like the Renaissance or like whatever. And I can feel it first through music and dance yeah. and then draw it. Yeah, that's so great. Now, I don't yeah. know if any of that made sense. No, it totally but... does. I'm, I'm quiet because, I mean, music is such a big part of the way that I engage with art. And I've played music my whole life. And it, I really love the parallels between the two. And it's a really great story. And thinking about that traveling through time through music in a way is really poetic because the one great thing about music is it doesn't really have the baggage that art has or that language, yeah. like speaking language does. Yeah. There's so much you politics. Just know it. You just yeah. feel it. Like you could... You know, if you are someone who appreciates music or dance or movement or that feeling of sound, you could teleport to any of those times. You could be in a drum circle in Africa in the 20s or you could be in like, you know, 1843 in Paris and like a cafe or something. And if you hear music, you just you can relate to it or it's like this language that. There's no... It trans- translates universally. Yes. And it's not like, oh, well, this kind of music. It's not usually like that. It's kind of like, yeah, the rhythm, it gets in you. It's like, yeah, it's almost I like know. a direct line to the soul in a way, which is pretty beautiful, yeah. you know? Yeah, it truly, truly is. And um, yeah, and I think music, listening to music, artists often are, that's what, you know, in the background, they're listening to music when they're making their work. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, that's been true for for so long um and you're and it is it's a universal language um i thought a touch about some of your compositions of those you know the park uh of course you know you made them um the uh the paper the chasing paper series i think it's yeah, called yeah, like that yeah. movement the swirling movement of that and thinking yeah. about those old 1920s like uh eggling like those animation those stop moving animations that had such beautiful yeah. spiral movement and then yeah. kandinsky's studies of like the opera and the conductors and those compositions there's something intrinsic to the movement of sound or the the way sound moves within you that i think has this natural composition when we try to visualize it which is a pretty interesting right. connection between the two it's kind of like an undeniable re- uh, physiological response to composition yeah yeah even those cage well, drawings was, you know there's a dynamic well, to that 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 yeah. resonates um well with the paper chase it was the cocteau tri- twins oh really um, yeah paper chase from that one album i can't remember but um yeah that's what I would listen to over oh, and that's over cool. and think of uh, it whirling. And it has this also strange, bizarre quality. Oh, oh, the paper chase. And then you're running and you're trying to find it. And then, you know, um, so, um, yeah. 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 Do you do you listen to music when you work? I, I listen to music when I'm dreaming up an idea right. to put me in a particular space yeah. 
which is outside the normal space right. of the everyday. Um, and um, uh, I do. I haven't done it with the thing I'm thinking of right now, and I don't know why. But I think um, it has to do with me wanting to get the hell out of this place I'm in well, so desperately. That's, that's creativity and, you know, and art. It's and so, and so, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm not allowing myself to kind of, you know, I'm just thinking when I can get out of this solitary confinement. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it used to be I would come here uh, on the weekends or in the summer in August to have, you know, that out of whatever time with my books and my music and my ideas. And, and now this, this is, I just can't wait to get back to this city. Yeah. Uh, well, things are uh, looking up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did, were you well, able to get vaccinated yet? I got one yeah. and I'm going to get another. That's one of the reasons to go back to get the second one. Right. If, you know, I'm agitating, everyone tells me, don't worry, they'll have it. They won't run out. Um, but um, yeah, so um, there's that. And then just, you know, just getting back to that noise. <laughs> right. The energy, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that uh nature i know that from your point of view you're longing and i guess your son is it's just so hard it's so hard for kids right now I know. yeah it's so tricky hard. ah they'll be fine they're resilient little buggers <laughs> yeah they are they can adapt they are. You know? and uh it'll make them you know they'll talk about it like i remember when um so it just does feel i i you know i'm very careful I'm not resisting anything that, you know, I'm supposed to do, but I do understand when people just go, I just can't wear that mask another day. I just, I need to be able to work. I need, you know, yeah. in other words, imagine if we were doing this with a mask, right. how hard that is. Yeah. Whereas because of the virtual reality, we can do this yeah. um, and be ourselves and be relaxed. But, you know, that, I do understand everyone's fatigue and um, it's um, it does seem relentlessly. When is it going to end? Yeah. Well, hopefully soon. Fingers crossed, you know? Yeah. Fingers crossed um, for sure. Um, you know, we just have to, yeah. you know, well, when you come to the city next, if you need someone to come house it and surf those surfboards, I'll be glad to take okay. you up on that offer. Uh, all right. I'll even walk the dog. <laughs> <laughs> the dog she would she would make you nuts um she is being quiet and uh, she's been right very now. respectful of this pot this audio been, recording i have to say it's uh it's i don't know what i'm gonna find there's gonna uh, be hell to pay I, when you get out of there maybe <laughs> maybe uh, but i am gonna board her and this morning because when i go in um, and she needs to be de she she needs to have her product her, her creativity neutered and so I'm using that as a reason to to do to go in get my shot have some studio time board her and I was thinking could I board her just a little longer well listen Brian it's been fun and I think we definitely I definitely you could see chattered just you know uh, on and on and I am on. I'm so excited to have and and listen I've talked to a lot of artists 
and I don't get, I don't want to say starstruck, but I don't fan out that much, but I'm like really excited to talk to you because I've been such a huge fan of your work and it's been like visually in my life and in inspiration in the studio for a long time. And you might not know that now. Cause like when I was in school, I was doing these fractal paintings and uh-huh. like, it just, it was part of my, my whole, you know, process. So it's, it's been like wonderful to talk to you and to uh-huh. find out that you're so charismatic and funny and cool. And <laughs> it's, it's been great. So thanks. I, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, well, thank you. You, you sort of made my, my, my morning and my day and, um, and I'll be thinking about it. You know, um, uh, it'll, it'll give me, uh, cause you know, as I said, it's very gray and snowing and sleeting. And so it actually, uh, is, uh, it's, it's, it's was a, you know, great conversation to have thank get you. me out of my head um, so just send me the so, bill for the, the rug that got chewed up whenever you're <laughs> <out> there. <laughs> Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ryan Alfred. Check out the podcast on the website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. Check out images on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. And please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Many thanks to Alice for taking the time to talk to me. Big thanks to Lullatone for the intro-outro music. And uh, thank you to Michael Lovett for the introduction. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>